there, folks. This is your man with the plan, Kenny Vaughn, director of Breakline Apex, and I am so happy to be back in the arena with my partner in crime. What is up, everybody? My name is Sophia. I am a talent recruiter here at Breakline, and mm, Kenny, it feels good to be back in the arena with you. Well, I'll tell you what, before we dive into this episode, I just want to give a personal shout out and a kudos to you, Miss Sophia Bowen. You just dropped a phenomenal mini series for Women's History Month. Folks, if you have not checked it out, please go back and listen. Um, Sophia does a phenomenal job profiling three of our Breakline alums. I'm not going to steal her thunder. I'm not going to steal their thunder. But what I will tell you is if you are listening to this episode and you have not listened to those three, please do yourself the favor and go back and just soak up the pearls of wisdom, the dimes that are being dropped. Um, so emblematic of our Breakline community. And Sophia, from, from one podcast host to another, I see you, sis. Great work. And thank you for sharing those stories, by the way. I'm just excited to share those with our community. I mean, our alums are absolutely outstanding. And as our faithful arena listeners will know, Kenny also did a mini series for Black History Month with four of our incredible alums. You got to go give those a listen to. We are just going to backlog you guys with hours of excellent listening content. So go okay. check them out. Okay. Because they're okay. pretty fire. Okay. Okay. So you know what I'm excited about today? Tell me, Kenny. We get a chance to hear from a boss. A real freaking boss. She is a boss, man. If you mm. have not heard of Monica Fallbush, okay, do yourself a favor. Get on LinkedIn. Get on Google. Do a quick search because she is the chief people officer at Epic Games. She has spent over 30 years in the people space, risen to the highest levels in the industry. And what's cool about this to me is she feels so comfortable in her skin as you listen to her talk. Yes. When I heard this conversation that she shared with Bethany, um, as a chief people officer, she's got such an important role at her organization. She's setting the culture. She's making sure that things are running smoothly with all of her, with all of her employees, um, especially as we talk about this remote and distance environment. I mean, there's mm -hmm. so many challenges that she is navigating on a daily basis. And she's doing it flawlessly. Sophia, what'd you think about this episode? I mean, she is doing it flawlessly and she's doing it with a little bit of swag. And you know what? We we love that here in the arena. The conversation with Monica was an absolute blast to listen to. She she dives into, you know, how to really um, upgrade your networking game. She talks about how it has made a tremendous impact for her in her career, how really putting in that time and investing in others will translate into more opportunities for you and for people within your team, within your organization. Who do you want to bring along with you on your career journey? So, um, Monica, it was an absolute pleasure to listen to, and I can't wait to share this with y'all. Let's open the doors to this here arena. This is such a fun conversation for me to be able to host today. Monica Falbush has been a champion of Breakline for a long, long time. We originally got to work with her when she um, was part of the leadership team at BMC Software. And it's wonderful to have you back with us today, Monica. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. My pleasure. Hi, everybody. Nice to meet you all. Um, Monica, so... I'd love for you to share a little bit more about your background and your story, your chief people officer at Epic Games, but you've had such an interesting journey. You've had stints obviously in tech, um, but also in retail and consumer and would love to just hear a little bit about your background as we get started today. Sure. Um, I think what has made my career so interesting, I would say. I'm almost 54, so I am probably in the last job, big operating job of my career right now, um, is that I've been able to move from industry to industry. And I think the first time I did it, it, it was probably an accident, but then it was very purposeful. So I've spent time mostly in high tech companies, mostly in software companies. Um, I, until right now, uh, I've lived in Northern California my entire life and my career. And now I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina, because that's where Epic Games is. What? Uh, so huge change for me on many, on many fronts. But 
I have really appreciated that the people um, discipline is one that is somewhat unique in that you can move it from, you know, from industry to industry and really, um, of course, the application is different. But for me, that was really rewarding. I, um, as you'll get to know me briefly in this session, you know, I love to be challenged and to learn. And I particularly like to learn how businesses operate and make money. And by moving from industry to industry, I've been able to see everything from retail for seven years in Old Navy, which was the fastest growing retailer of their time. <clears throat> a lot of software companies, very high growth, PeopleSoft in the day, Salesforce, uh, which is still a company that I have huge admiration for. Um, BMC Software, which was private equity owned. So that was very interesting to me to do something different. Uh, I probably won't do it again, but it was fascinating to learn. And now Epic Games. Uh, well, I skipped Jewel, which was uh, without a doubt the hardest job I've ever had uh, to be in arguably the most hated company of its time, um, uh, probably six months ago in a category that is, you know, controversial and modern and I'm happy to talk about that. And now, and now Epic, which is obviously in the gaming space. And uh, we sit on top of the world's most popular game, which is Fortnite. I'm not a gamer, but um, I'm sure many of you are. And so I'm happy to answer questions that you might have about, about uh, Epic. But that's a little bit about me. You know, I've been in the people role for most of my career. I've been a chief people officer for over 15 years now. And um, I will, you know, uh, Bethany and I can wind a little bit through some of the topics that are really uh, top of mind for my job right now. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Somebody, I think somebody just yesterday said, it was someone who was also a people leader, and they were saying, um, you know, just kind of the general sort of concept of people operations and HR is like Toby from, you know, the office. And in fact, it's so much fun. And you to me, like you are such a rock star. You even look like a rock star, like you're fabulous. <laughs> and and um, I want you to, to talk about why this function is so exciting and so interesting and so powerful. Would you share just some thoughts around that? Yeah, I would say, um, Having done this for so long, I can credibly say that I think many people in leadership roles in the people team space are actually like Toby, if I'm being honest. And I think it's not their fault. I think it's because most companies really don't know how to position the people team um, in the most appropriate way. And so what happens is, I mean, my view is the people team, HR in particular, only exists because managers are universally bad. Most managers are bad. So you create this environment where you have to have a, a go-between between the employees and the company. Small companies, good companies don't have HR at all for a reason, which is it's a healthy dynamic. You don't really need it. There's not a lot of risk, et cetera. But unfortunately, as companies grow, you do need that go-between. You need that broker and HR fits the bill. And unfortunately, unless the company has a really strong executive team and executive support for the work that the people team is doing, they can be marginalized. And unfortunately, I would say that's, that's been my experience. Um, that is not my experience. So in the companies that I've been a part of and the teams that I have built, um, we have really set ourselves apart, which is why I think as I look back, um, I'm really proud of what we have achieved and the companies I've been able to work for. And I think it is because we have differentiated um, and because I have been able to, and the teams that I've put together, we've been able to really um, be at one point the business partner. You know, fundamentally, all businesses speak the language of finance. And if you can't speak the language of finance, then you will be marginalized. So I think a lot of people who I've encountered in the people space have really deep views about employee engagement and you know, things that should be right or wrong, et cetera. And those are all super important, but first and foremost, you have to be a business person. I am a business person first. I live in data. I'm very analytical. I'm very operational. That's my brand. Um, and I think because of that, we've then earned permission in these very elite companies to have a huge impact 
on uh, the things we do for the employees. So, you know, the Tobies are out there, uh, but I think it's been my life's work to try to be the anti-Toby and to really be um, in a role that has, has pretty big impact. So, yeah. I totally agree with that. You certainly are the the anti Toby, um, and one of the things that I I I learned from you and I've thought a lot about since we talked about this when you were at BMC was the whole concept of employee experience, and really putting the employee experience at the center of the business and at the center of how to how to grow and scale the business. Um, that was a concept that you originally um, helped me understand, and I'd love for you to share more about that with our audience. Sure. So um, I'm going to take a step back in order to explain employee experience. Um, you all are young. I'm not young, but I'll, I remember about seven to 10 years ago, the big movement in HR was to have shared services, you know, to outsource a lot of what HR was doing, especially for large companies. And that was all about uh, labor arbitrage. So uh, it was about cost savings and consistency and risk mitigation because, you know, humans um, get involved in emotion and business partners sometimes might give different answers. So anyway, the, the days of old was about creating consistency and service management in HR that was risk mitigation and ease of use and self-service. And thank God, the evolution came in the last five years to a place where, you know, much like most of these companies and particularly software companies where I have spent most of my career, they create an ecosystem where the center of their world is their customer. And they shield their customer from a lot of the sausage making, what it's like to engage with them on a service level, um, they are very careful about who gets to speak to the customer, one voice, one image. And that's because they want the experience of that customer to be efficient and powerful and very positive. And finally, the, the, the bells and whistles went off to say, well, if we believe that to be true, which they all do, why don't we put the, the, the employee at the center of how we manage the company? And that's really what, what for me uh, at BMC, we did a little bit of this at Salesforce when I was there, but more so at BMC because we were an IT company uh, and IT reported into me. So we had the ability to have full control over every aspect of the employee lifecycle. And what we built was a really powerful way of thinking about the employee at the center of all of those processes. So everything from when we talk to you as an applicant, what does that feel like? How does that integrate to then your experience in the interview and then onboarding if you're hired and then the journey of being an employee. And what was beautiful about it is because we were leaning on technology, we could see things technically that were impacting the experience. We didn't leave it to chance. So uh, we were, the, the best part of all that, besides the fact that we had really highly engaged employees um, and we were changing the experience was that um, we were able to talk to our customers about that because we were an enterprise IT company and they had the same challenges. And so um, there's nothing better than when what you do uh, actually can become a product and you can talk to your customers about it. It's really a, a powerful thing. So. Um, that's what we did with employee experience. And now it's funny because we went from the call centerism to now employee experience. And here we sit today, a year that we've all been working from home, or most of us, many of you probably aren't, but most, most workers are, and it will, it is changing again. And maybe we'll have time, you know, in this session to talk about a little bit of that, but the experience now has gone from the experience in an office to a very remote, flexible type of reality. So that's something that all of us are facing. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Monica. Um, this, the, the work that you were describing took place when you were at BMC and um, you were overlapped when you were at BMC with Dan Streetman, who's also <laughs> been a wonderful champion of break lines over the last um, couple of years. Um, and both of you were alums of Salesforce. Yeah. And so it just, it was an example of relationships kind of spanning your career and you kind of bring them with you, you know, over, over the course of many years. Will you talk a little bit about that? Like 
just, you know, how you invest in your network, how you build relationships and partnerships with other people and hang on to them as you move from place to place? Yeah, I'll start uh, by saying, I think of everything that I've done in my now long career, this aspect of taking care of these relationships is the part that I am flat out, full stop, the most proud of. Um, when I was at Jewel, which was a very difficult company to hire into because we were so misunderstood, um, I would say I built the best team I've ever built and I hired out of my, my personal network, 20 people. It was also the most diverse team I've ever built. Uh, the team that we built was the most diverse at the entire company. And um, of my direct reports, 50% were black. And that was because of the network that I had built over 30 years. And so I was, I am, am extremely proud of that. And so to answer your question, yeah, Dan and I are good friends. Dan and I, um, um, he's a much, much better athlete than I am, but we love to get outside and ski and snowboard and just, we've stayed connected. He's a wonderful human. So yes, we work together at, um, Dan is an Ironman. Yeah, he's a, he's a crazy, crazy person. Um, I worked with him at Salesforce. He's an extraordinary individual. We hired him, both um, his former boss and I went to BMC, we hired Dan. Um, and so he's, he's just a, a fabulous person. But to answer your question more broadly, um, I think early in my career, I did not do as good a job as I could have on the networking. I particularly didn't like to go, you know, okay, young people, back in the day, like we went to mixers and we went to like networking events and things, you know, we didn't have these social platforms. So we actually, you know, went and had cocktails and things like that, or went to conferences. And um, I didn't care for that. I didn't like it. I had two young children. I had a really long commute. And so I had excuse after excuse not to do that. Um, and then I, um, I, I caught up and now of course, it's something I'm the most proud of, but I, um, I'm in a really fortunate spot now to not only have many, many people who I have relationships with, um, which by the way, when a company like Epic hires me as the chief people officer, it is not lost on them that I will, you guys like, uh, have you seen Galaxy Quest, that movie, Galaxy Quest, nodding of heads, no, it's a spoof on Star Trek, okay, there's a scene where he is, uh, the fake captain is going after the bad guy and he's like, yeah, 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 but I'm dragging mines. So Mike, I'm dragging these people with me now everywhere I go. And um, yes, Tim Allen, well, Sigourney Weaver, like, come on. Anyway, uh, they count on that. And it's actually the number one question I ask in interviews is if I hire you, how many people from your personal network will you bring with you to this organization? So I, uh, I couldn't underscore enough, Brit Bethany, how, how important this is. And uh, I think with respect to diversity in particular, you didn't ask me that specifically, but that is, I think, the most powerful way that we will continue to have an impact is diverse people, no diverse people, people who have these individuals in their network. It's a trusted resource. They will follow each other, especially when you've built high-performing teams. And um, you know, the most important part about hiring diversity is not hiring them. It's creating an, env an environment once they're there in which they can thrive and operate. And so um, I have found that the best way is through, is through your network. So yes, I have a lot to say about networking, but do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you know, now at my age, probably the best part about my network is I'm now getting to give back a lot to my network. And that is really, really rewarding. I have a mentor who I've had for 20 years. He was the CEO of a company um, and we met when the board uh, let him go and I got to meet him and help him clean out his office as a young HR professional. That was really fun, but we bonded. And 20 years later, we, we are very, very close. And he now calls me as much for guidance and advice uh, as I call him. And that's just really rewarding. And then mentoring young people is, is fabulous, so. Thank you, Monica. We are getting so many questions from the audience. I wanna ask just one or two more and then I'm gonna turn it over okay, cool. to their questions as well. Um, one of the things that you that you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that you're thinking about a lot is we've just had this whole year where we're working remotely. 
hopefully we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel with accessibility of um, the vaccine. And you're starting to think about kind of bringing folks back into the office or potentially doing that and what, what that might look like when we get to the other side of, um, of the pandemic. Could you talk to us more about, about your thoughts there and, and your expectations about how that will unfold? Yes, uh, I think this is going to be absolutely fascinating to watch. So I think um, some of this you won't like what I have to say. So I'll just say that right up front. Um, companies, of course, did the right thing by very quickly reacting to the pandemic and taking every safety precaution and having us be at home, I think, really fast. And everyone kind of figured it out. It was, it was quite, quite amazing um, that we were able to do that. I think that the return is going to be exactly the opposite. I think it's going to be very slow. And I think it's going to be very specific to the cultures of these companies and to the employees who they serve. And I think there will be a lot of varying approaches and I think the smart companies are not gonna go first. They're gonna to watch to see what happens, who kicks the tires, what works well. Um, and the other thing I would say is I would be very surprised if in the, it, between let's say June, I think that come June, there's gonna be a ton of pent up demand for us to uh, get people back into offices. And I think, you know, there's always a tipping point. Um, and I think we're going to start to tip around end of May is my guess where things are just going to open up. And um, so the this return to office is going to accelerate. Um, that's not the part you won't like. Here's the part you won't like. I firmly believe that there is a reason why we go to the office. We go to the office because humans naturally collaborate and socialize at work. That's not everyone, but in general, we didn't just go to the office because companies wanted to spend a disproportionate amount of operating expense on real estate, which is ridiculously expensive, and all the other things that are expensive in an office. They did it because it is a natural human behavior to collaborate and to socialize in ways that are beyond this forum, which is Zoom, which is I find it exhausting to be on Zoom all day, which I am, and I'm sure you guys are too. So I... I do understand that by letting everybody be home during a pandemic, very stressful time, um, that it has been very appreciated by many people. And I think the trick now is how do you come back from that? And it, particularly young people um, are exceptionally demanding about what companies offer. Uh, when we first went, you know, to remote, I distinctly remember employees asking me how to file for their lunch vouchers because we provided free lunch in the office. And now that we're all at home, how do I get my free lunch? And I just wanted to like, you know, cradle my head in my hands and say, I can't believe that you're asking me this question. Now you all are military, so you're much tougher and thicker skinned and probably wouldn't have asked that question. But trust me, there is a lot of that. And I use that to be dramatic, but I think you understand the point, which is we're over here now where we've accommodated everything we possibly can, at least most employers have for all these right reasons. And the challenge now is how to find this equilibrium where of course we're gonna offer more flexibility. Uh, of course, uh, there will be a period of time where certain people will not be comfortable or, or uh, have health reasons that they can't immediately go back into the office. I think social distancing isn't going to go away in a minute. So there's a lot that we're going to have to learn about, you know, what that looks like. But I am 100% convinced that we will see a new cultural divide in the workplace. The one will be the workers who go back and who have the benefit of the hallway conversations and the relationships that are built. And, and then there will be another culture of people who choose not to do that or who moved home, you know, who moved away from the urban centers, which I think by the way, that time is, is done. You know, if any of you are in the San Francisco area and you've been in San Francisco, it is a changed city. And I don't think it'll come back to, the, I hope, you know, the $17 salads need to be done forever. That was ridiculous. Uh, what were we thinking? So, uh, and the, the lacrosse, exactly. 
So that is going to be fascinating. And I, uh, I, I just firmly believe that companies are going to have to take a stance. You know, some companies were very fast to virtue signal about, oh, we'll be, you know, we'll be remote forever. They're going to eat those words. I, I do not think that that is, that is sustainable. And I do not think that is the best way for us all to work. So anyway, long answer, I have a lot to say on that topic. And as you might imagine, it's one of the top priorities that is on my desk right now for us to figure out. Oh, I love this. And I cannot wait to see if, um, if your prediction comes true. Thank you so much, Monica. I'm going to start um, mixing some of the questions that you and I talked about in advance with some of the ones that are coming in. And I want to, um, I want to mention one um, from Isaac. So you have worked at some of the most beloved brands in the world. Salesforce was like very buzzy. Everyone was excited about Salesforce when you were there. Epic Games, I mean, just, you know, a, an amazing following, lots and lots of love. Um, but you said in, in your opener, you said, I also worked at Jewel, one of the most hated companies in the world. And Isaac is wondering, what was that like? What, what was it like to be inside of that? Um, that, that Isaac, what you call the controversial environment. Isaac's like, what were you smoking? Ta-da, done. Um, I don't smoke or vape. So uh, I, I knew right about the time that I was looking to make a, a change out of BMC, which was a private equity run. I'd been commuting from Oakland, California, where I live, to Houston for four and a half years, which I do not recommend. Um, and I knew that I needed to get back to my personal sweet spot. My sweet spot is high growth, product oriented. Uh, I was in the prime of my earning potential, so I wanted to make a lot of money. Uh, I wanted to be part of a team that was a team of people that I thought were super sharp and really, I, I like to work with high competency people who have very low ego, hard to find. That is not Salesforce's environment. Um, and so I had my list. I'm a very structured thinker. I had my list of what I was looking for. I also didn't wanna be commuting again. So I wanted to be in a proper San Francisco based company. And so I got a call from a headhunter and he said, Monica, I found it. I've got the job for you. It hits every single one of your boxes. And he was smart enough to go through all of the boxes before he said the name of the company. <laughs> and he said, it's Jewel. And I said, no, I actually said something different, but you get the point. Um, and he said, look, I knew you would say that, but would you please just go meet with the CEO? And uh, back to the networking comment, if you get, ever get invited to talk to a CEO, the answer is yes. And so I said, of course, I would love to meet with the CEO. So we went and had breakfast and I absolutely fell in love with him. Uh, I think the feeling was mutual. We went way, way long. And he is my favorite profile of CEO to work for. He is um, what I call a pace setter. His hand is always on your back. So I don't know about you guys, but I love to work when somebody is absolutely pushing me. It's never good enough. I can never outwork them. They are leading the pace. I call them the pace setter. He is this way. Um, super smart um, in ways that I am not smart. So I learned, you know, he was a banker. He's an engineer. Um, very fast moving. I love fast moving CEOs. And so not only did they check all my boxes, but now I was like, well, shit, I really like this guy a lot. I really want to work with him. And then I pr proceeded to meet the executive team and I fell in love to a person. I would say Jewel is the strongest executive team I've ever been a part of. And I don't think I realized it until about six months in. When you are in a, a hated company in a hated and misunderstood category that is facing FDA regulation, that's trying to take on a pretty big fight, I encourage you not to try to take on big tobacco because it is not easy. <laughs> that's what we were trying to do. Juul exists only to you know, stop people from smoking cigarettes. That's the sole purpose of the company. Um, the team inside could not have been tighter. So it was, it was the most, rewarding experience of being part of a team. There were no politics because it was so obvious who the enemy was outside. None of that was going on inside. And because we were a very wealthy company, uh, I mean, we were, we were you know, at $5 billion at our peak. 
um, and we were the fastest growing startup at the time I joined, uh, we hired phenomenal people. So the pace of Juul is something I will never experience again. And as somebody who loves that, it was nirvana for me. And um, what I learned there is don't say no too soon. If something actually checks a lot of your boxes, there are a lot of companies in controversial spaces. I would say cannabis is a really controversial space right now that is, uh, I think, a really interesting space for people uh, who are not afraid of it. Um, there is a company right now that's doing some really interesting anti-drone um, technology. It's a startup, a very fast growing startup. And so again, some people, I talked to a woman who said, I'm not, I can't do it. And I said, that's fine. She didn't feel good about being in a company that could potentially be weaponized. So I would just say, you know, if there's learning for you, unapologetically take it on. And um, the learning is, is, can be really, what I learned at Jewel, I will take with me forever. Nothing will, will replace that experience. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Monica. Um, there's so many questions coming in here. So um, folks, we're going to try to get to as many of these as we can. This one is from Christian and he says, how are you attacking crunch culture, which is an issue at gaming companies? What strategies are you applying to combat it for the health, safety and work-life balance for developers and all personnel? Do you feel that this is a unique challenge for gaming companies? Awesome. <laughs> Um, let's, I'm going to uh, hijack the question just a little bit. Uh, I understand the question about crunch culture and I will answer it directly, but I want to also talk a little bit about burnout and work-life balance and those kinds of things. Um, specifically what we're doing about crunch is we at Epic have unlimited PTO and we shut the company down twice a year for two weeks at a time. And we do that because the only way really to have a break is if everybody takes a break at the same time. Otherwise we've all experienced it. The emails don't stop, some rush project, you know, whatever. And I'm, I'm not gonna say that every one of us actually does get to shut down for those two weeks. We do it once in the summer and we do it once around the Christmas New Year holiday, but it is the most effective way to give everyone a break. Um, because everybody's hands off the keyboard, everyone has permission, uh, the executives aren't, aren't doing any emails either, and that has been extremely rewarding and helpful. The other is we've gotten better about our production cycles, so we have two concurrent teams running so that there's not, it's not, you're not in perpetual um, delivery mode, we split things up. And then during the pandemic, and uh, until we return to the office, we give every other Friday off. So it's a lot, it's a lot of time. I will tell you that the days in between are pretty busy, <laughs> pretty demanding, but it is hugely appreciated that we are giving the time to just you know step away and clear your head. My word on balance, uh, work-life balance is, I really don't think there is such a thing anymore. Um, you know, back in the day when there were no cell phones, no laptops, balance was different because when you left work, you left work. You truly left work behind. Those days are gone. And so what I really encourage everyone to think about is work-life integration. How can you find creative ways to, um, you know, get the things done that are important to you and also be a productive worker. And thank goodness, most companies are more and more open to those things. I know as a leader and a very senior leader, I'm the senior most female at uh, Epic and have been at the last three companies I was at. I am very aware of what I do and what I say and how I manage my calendar casts a wide shadow. So I am very open about my morning is my time. I will go to the gym. I will go to yoga. That is, you do not book that time. And I talk about it to give other people who work for me permission to do the same thing. Um, you know, when I take vacation, I talk about it. I say, oh, so great. Here's what we did. You know, those small things matter, but I'm demonstrating that I'm finding that integration um, and encouraging people to do the same. Thank you, Monica. Uh, Mandy Birch has a great question. She says, what are some practical tips for how you've succeeded in 
influencing executives to embrace responsibilities for the employee experience versus fully delegating that to HR? And I think this is such a great question because there are a lot of adjacent topics around it. Diversity and inclusion is a great example of an adjacent topic that cannot be ring-fenced in one team. It cannot be ring-fenced just to people operations or just to HR. It has to be a shared responsibility across the board. How do you how do you influence your peers to make this part of their, their day-to-day responsibility as well? Well, I'm really a strong believer in public shaming. No, I'm just kidding. So uh, what I mean by that is um, I, I think so often executives are allowed to get away with behavior or lack of you know, action because we infrequently ask employees to give us feedback. So my favorite survey of all surveys I've ever administered in my entire career was a five question survey. Every question was yes or no. It was only employees answering these questions about their manager. And it was a binary result. You were either a five, a four, a three, a two, or a one. There's no way to fudge this survey. And we were able to identify the five managers. We promoted them all. Um, And by the way, I knew every single one of them. We were not surprised by the fives. And the twos and the ones we had very different conversations about. The point of that is it's so infrequent that we actually hold managers accountable. And I'm a big believer of holding managers accountable because this is, it goes a little bit again to the people team. And I know all of you are not in the people space, but in your own space, think about when you get asked to do something, follow it through and say, okay, but if we do this, you know, what is the ultimate accountability? Most of the work that the people team does has some manager accountability to it. And it's so rare that we actually hold those managers accountable. And so what happens is, you know, the employee gets blamed or the people team gets in a tough spot or they're just allowed to continue to do what they were doing. So uh, I am very big on before I take the order, whatever the project is, I want to understand how we're going to hold the teams accountable. Now, I'm big on accountability for my team, too. So don't don't get me wrong. We need to know exactly what success looks like and what we're going to be held accountable to. But so are the managers and leaders of the company. And I think, you know, this is a this is a um, you talked about diversity. I have I'll say two things about diversity now and then I'm happy to answer any other questions you have about it. Um, I don't care who you hire. You could hire Oprah Winfrey and you are not going to solve diversity at your company until the executives are held accountable and have internalized it because it's just, that's the way it has to be. It has to become part of the way you do your business. So at Epic, that's exactly what we're doing. You know, we are, there is no diversity pipeline strategy. There is a recruiting pipeline strategy and it must include uh, diverse candidate flow. There is no diversity sensitivity training. There is manager training and there is awareness and sensitivity training and everything must have uh, that element. So I'm I'm just a big believer in that. It's either part of your core business or stop talking about it because a lot of these companies that are talking about it, uh, they're not actually getting the job done, big companies. So I'm just a doer. You guys are getting a sense of my style. I'm sure that doesn't surprise you at this point, but I like to just get it done. I don't want to shout about it. I want to get it done and then we can, you know, celebrate the wins and and move on. So that, I think that has to be a direct accountability to the, to the executives. Ah, people, like one of many reasons why I love working with Monica. We, we always say, if you want a coffee mug or a t-shirt, go somewhere else. That is not what Breakline is doing. If you want to get it done, come to Breakline. I love that about you, Monica. Um, Alexandra has a question for you. She wants to know about your heroes. She said, who do you most look up to in your industry and why? Uh, I, you know, I look up and and all around. I would say, and I'm not trying to skirt the question, um, I right now am mostly inspired by and influenced by young people. Uh, My children are 30 and 26. They're a huge impact on my life. And uh, I think that doing the job that I do and doing it in very fast paced, high tech companies, you have to be curious about young people. Uh, They they just 
you know, they, they're so spontaneous and, and so savvy in ways that I never was. And I just love the interaction with young people. So uh, I'm, I purposely go out of my way to make sure that I'm interacting with young people. Um, my mentors are, have also a huge impact on me. And I have, you know, back to our conversation on networking, I definitely have um, mentors who have been with me for a long, long time. These are people who tell me what no one else will tell me. You know, you need that truth teller in your life. So I could not, I wouldn't be here without my mentors. Uh, you know, when things are going wrong, first I'll talk to my husband. And then the very next person I call is my mentor usually to go, shit, this just happened. You know, what do I do? Um, or, you know, something, something, um, is very stressful for me. You know, you need that ally, that person that you trust. So those are the people that I really look up to um, in my life. We have a couple of questions around what you look for. You've talked about hiring in teams and, and pulling your teammates with you into, into new opportunities as well. Um, what are you looking for? How do you know when you're talking to a standout candidate? Well, my answer is going to be a little biased because um, I, I tend to look for people who in many ways are, have a similar style to me, but then, you know, there are also, you've got to, you know, there are certain jobs where that's going to be different and you actually do not want somebody who's similar to you. But in general, I look for people who have really strong go speed, go speed for me is like, if you're in an interview, we used to literally do this at Salesforce. We're in an interview and we would walk out of my office and I would say, okay, so now the next part of the interview is we're going to clock you to see how fast you can run down the hall. The person who would throw their purse down and kick their heels off and get in a three point stance, I would make an offer that day. That's go speed. That's like, all right, we're doing this. I got it. Like, what, what, what are we doing? Um, they are, they're not precious they move quickly, they um, have strong points of view, they're actually, they have a bias for action. I love that, but I love it because I'm the same way. So of course I do. <laughs> um, now, what I need is I need to surround myself with people who are very, very thoughtful because I am, I'm, I'm not always, I'm biased for action and biased for action people need to surround themselves with people like, so I see where you're going, but have you thought about, you know. The other thing I look for uh, are people who live in curiosity. Things are changing so, so fast. Um, we really, I find that the people who are really successful in those fast moving environments um, are very curious. They're eager to solve the problem. They don't get stuck easily in, well, you know, it didn't work last time or that's not gonna work this time. Um, you know, I'm working with somebody now who literally every conversation is, well, I don't think that's gonna work. And, you know, so uh, I work them through it. I'm trying to help them, you know, see it differently, but I love people who live in curiosity. Um, I am a very data-driven person. So I look for people who, and this is unfortunately really typical in the people team space because we deal with people and we deal with emotions. Um, when someone is telling me a story about something that's happening, I will have to stop if there is no data or there are no specifics. I call it hand-waving. And hand-waving is, is interesting, but not helpful. So I like when we can be specific, when there are exact examples that you can give me so I can actually see what you're talking about. Um, and that when we go to action something, we know specifically what it is. It's not just innuendo or hearsay or you know something like that. So um, I love data and specifics. And um, then I think the final thing is this, I've said it before, I really, I really look for people who have no ego. Um, ego is a tough thing because you need ego to get you where you are, but I love people who can, who can really just be in the pocket. You know, the, I think another thing I loved about Jewel coming from high tech where everybody thinks they're the smartest people in the universe and people have made a lot of money and they're very arrogant. You know, Jewel was serving, of course, the globe, but in America, the disproportionate amount of smokers are black veteran 
and Hispanic. And 500,000 of them die every year and nobody cares. So at Jewel, what I loved was it was the first time I felt really connected to those Americans. You know, my parents were immigrants. I was raised blue collar and that really resonated with me. And so we had all these great smart minds, scientists, engineers, and they were so committed to serving those Americans. You know, we used to say we stand with the smoker because nobody would. And um, I look for that, you know, just that ability to find the reality or the authenticity of who you're serving or what you're doing. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. Monica, you've you've talked about ego several times. And, and one of the things that you mentioned early in the conversation was the combination of high competency, low ego. And we're getting a couple questions around that and how you assess it during an interview process. You know, how do you kicking the tires on on culture and management and leadership style and some of those um, softer intangibles can be difficult to discern when you're interviewing. How did you do it? You know, you had that clarity with, um, with several of the companies that you joined. How did you achieve it? There are a couple of ways to test for ego. One way is to, I start every single interview the same way and I ask the exact same question. And the question I ask has to do with, tell me your story. Tell me the story that I can't see on your resume. The story about when you made the changes between jobs, what was happening? If I was your best friend or your sister and we were ha having a, a beer, I would know the story between those you know, moves, but I can't see that on your resume. So talk to me, tell me your story. And in the storytelling, you can cue on things for people who have low ego where they're they will tell you the whole story. They're not, you know, cutting corners on the story about the things where they screwed up or, you know, it didn't go as they had planned or the lessons they had learned. They're very confident, you know, they're confident and they're going to tell you with authenticity, the good and the bad and the learning. Um, I also listen for people who have struggled. You know, people who were, we saw a lot of this at Salesforce, they were top of their class, then they went to a top college, again, top of their class. They come from a privileged type of environment. And I'm like, well, congratulations, man, easy street for you. But I'm not sure you can hang with the difficulties you're gonna face here. So we used to look for the people who went to the state school and who had a chip on their shoulder and who had something to prove um, because they can roll with the punches uh, and their lower egos. So that's, that's one way. The second way is we used to purposefully have things go wrong in the interviewing process to see how they could handle it. So these would be things like, uh, oh, whoops, we changed the conference room a couple of times. You know, really sorry, I'll walk you over there. And you just see how they deal with it. It's kind of unfair, but it was really effective. <laughs> and then the third thing you do is you always, always, always get the feedback from the coordinator or the receptionist. How they treated those people is incredibly meaningful. Um, so many great golden nuggets and that's what people are posting in the chat about. Monica, thank you so much. Um, Megs is asking a question and, and you've touched on this, but I, I'd love to put a finer point on this um, because it's, it's such an important um, part of your story and an important part of who you are as a leader and as a professional. Megs is asking when you were first starting out building your network, you talked about having immigrant parents, blue collar background. Um, that's true for many of us in the Breakline um, community as well. How did you go about building relationships and maintaining those relationships over the long term? Right now, I mean, you're you're part of the C-suite at one of the world's most interesting companies. Everyone wants to get to know you. <laughs> that it was a different story, you know, at the beginning of your career. You're the same person, but um, but no one knew that yet. And um, and so, how do you? How do you start building those important relationships early on? And then how do you keep those folks close to you, especially when you can't have a coffee with them? You yeah. know, you can't like, you don't cross paths with them in the hallway. Yep. Um, it's about, I think there are two things because I get asked this question a lot. Um, one thing is, 
to, and, and this is different maybe in your personal life or if you're dating or something like that. In the professional environment, I always say, put the onus on you, like get over it. If you've been the one who's texted five times or sent five emails or five requests for a cup of coffee, get over it. It doesn't matter. There's no scorecard here and be the one to drive those connections. So I'm always the, uh, there's a profile tool where I'm the connector. I am, I'm a big connector. So I will, uh, you know, I'm relatively new at Epic. So I've already um, been the one saying, hey, I know it's COVID, but I've moved to North Carolina. Like, let's go, let's grab a walk. Let's grab a coffee. Let's, uh, you know, the other night I was just on the phone with a colleague and we talked about absolutely nothing, you know, just, 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 so making the connections and being the one to make sure that you are making the connections. Don't wait and don't get discouraged if they blow you off a couple times because some people develop trust and connections at a much different pace than others. Uh, I'm also the chief people officer. Some people don't want to have a close connection with me because they're worried that that could then, you know, uh, get used against them. And I get that. I understand that. So first and foremost, um, own it. Own it and get over yourself because you want the connection. It's worth the effort. Um, the second thing then is I, it's that, it's a little bit of that living in curiosity, like be curious about everyone. My job, I have the ability to see the companies when they're succeeding, but if I'm honest, most of the time I'm helping the company when they're in pain, you know, when things are breaking, relationships are hurting and, and look, among other things I learned at Juul, try being the chief people officer at the world's most hated company for a while. It's not fun. Uh, I got some intensely personal feedback and you know the town halls were not always fun. And that too, you need to get over. So what I did was, I'll never forget this one town hall. Uh, you know, Somebody was very frustrated about something. And of course I, the question came my way in a very inappropriate and very personal way. And it was uncomfortable for everybody. We got through it. The minute that town hall was over, I made a beeline to this employee and I said, you obviously care deeply about this. We're gonna talk. And we spent an hour and a half talking. I could have easily just said, you know what, fuck you. Uh, and that was not the right answer, so I didn't. And uh, again, you, you get over it. And he then became someone that I could tap into to hear a part of the organization that I otherwise would not have heard. So I think this, this making connections is 100, put it 100% on you um, and do the work and the rewards will come and then, then give back to the network. Uh, you know, I find my, I'm, I love to connect through humor. Um, so I'm, I'm the one who will always send the GIF or the memes now, it's all about the memes. Um, I love to find connecting points with people. Uh, I love music, electronic dance music is my favorite. So, you know, I connect with people on music, especially young people. Um, so you just, you know, you find those ways, you live in curiosity and uh, I hate this world word, but you curate, you know, you, you've got to constantly be out there making the effort. I love that so much. It's at the same time, extraordinarily insightful and very pragmatic. So thank you, Monica. Um, a couple more questions here. I, there was one question that, that we talked about in advance and it hasn't come up yet. And so I would love to, to touch on this with you, which is the difference that you are feeling right now inside of a founder-led engineering-led company that's extremely creative versus one that was like BMC, for example, is PE backed, very focused on financial management and financial metrics. And it's just been a, you know, um, a real difference between the two. And I'd love for you to talk about that so that our breakliners are also aware of some of the extenuating circumstances that, um, that influence how, what it looks and feels like to be inside of some of these companies. Yep. Um, this has been probably the most surprising thing about coming to Epic. Um, Epic, unlike the last 15 years of my career, where it was the, the, the North Star, the goal, the road forward was super clear in terms of the financials. You know, at, at Juul, who knew if we were going to get FDA approval and what competitors were coming and all that. But we knew the path forward financially. Same at Salesforce same at BMC. And that's usually revenue, 
um, profitability, it might be operating expense or EBITDA, which is a term I know you guys know. And, and I got really good at that. You know, it's really easy to point your way toward one of those metrics because they are financial metrics. They are crystal clear. And at, um, at Epic, we, we do not run the company that way. We are a founder-led, engineering-led, innovation-based company that is 100% um, focused on the long game. So uh, Tim, who's our founder, who's still here, uh, is his vision is to create what he calls the metaverse. And the metaverse is another place where people can go and create an online persona that's very personal to them and where they can socially interact with their friends in an environment where they can do many things. They can go and play Fortnite, uh, by the way, platform agnostic. So we believe very much in open systems. And then they can bounce over and see a Travis Scott concert. And the whole time they can be socially uh, connected through uh, House Party, which is, which is our social app. Um, and, and who knows where the metaverse will, will continue. But I think what we've learned during COVID uh, and with the many, many millions and millions of users who are on our platforms every day is that people are seeking out that place. So for Tim and for, therefore for all of us, it's not about profitability. We give Fortnite away. It's a free to play, to play game, just like we give the engine technology away. We make money in other ways. But that is a very different view of how to run the company. And for me, it could not be better. I mean, you're in a, I'm in a company where the most important thing is keeping our culture um, special. And we're a big company that likes to act very small, making sure that we always, always, always have more developers, people who create stuff than people who are in the back office. Uh, and that we are never, uh, reducing our threshold about top talent who's coming to Epic. So, I mean, could you ask for more as a chief people officer? It's really, it's really amazing, but it is, I'm still kind of, <laughs> kind of like, okay, but how do I know we're successful? Like, what does that look like? You know, so that's, that's new and different, but it's, it's amazing. All right, Monica, last question for me. I know we're coming up toward the top of the hour here. One of the things that I find so magnetic about you is this like punchy energy that you have. You're, you're brave and courageous and out front and you lead from the front. And it's really resonating with, um, with our audience as well. There are lots of great comments. Um, one of which is just the very simple, Monica, you're so cool. <laughs> and so I'd love for you to share, how do you cultivate that in yourself? And the reason why I love it is also because it's magnetic and it's powerful and it encourages people to invest in you. And I want our breakliners to have that in their own lives as well. How did you, how did, how do you make that happen for yourself? Yeah. I mean, if I go way, way back, you know, I was raised by two immigrants who didn't have a penny to their name and who like so many of your parents probably figured it out you know, came to the United States for a better start and figured it out. They also didn't hover. So uh, unlike my generation, which hovers a lot over our children, I, I had to figure it out. And I think that was a huge factor in, you know, how, how I am. And then, you know, I think I was super lucky that when they immigrated, they immigrated to Berkeley, California. And I don't know if you all know Berkeley, but Berkeley is the most liberal and diversity in the United States. And I was surrounded by people of every faith, every sexual uh, you know, description, drag, gay, religion, old, young, my dad was an artist. And so that was all I knew, you know, that was normal for me. That was like, well, everybody must have that surrounding. And of course it isn't at all, but, um, but that was, that was my experience. And so I, I can't help but say, of course, that shaped me. Um, and then I'm certain that being a woman in very much a man's world, technology in the 30 years I've been doing it is a man's world. It still is today. Um, and then as I got uh, more senior being 
one of the only women, you know, around the table. So I think all of that has shaped me, but I would hope that the, that the reaction is that it's authentic. You know, I've, I've worked with executives who have a persona, but I'm not always sure it's authentic. I think I'm just too lazy. It's like, what you see is what you get, you know? And, um, and I do have, I do have a lot of confidence, but I think some of it too is, um, it's that low ego. I mean, I certainly, uh, I, you know, I, I know how to have a voice and I have to, but I would hope that it's that low ego that just, you know, don't worry about all those other things, just deliver and be yourself. And that has, that has mostly served me well. It's hard sometimes, um, but mostly. Monica, as always, thank you so much for carving out time. Such a pleasure to spend the last hour with you. I know everyone on the line is joining me and just saying thanks so much for the opportunity to hear from you and to learn from you. Thank you, it was a pleasure. And good luck to all of you. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode in the Breakline Arena. We hope that you're walking away feeling a little inspired, a little bit moved, and feeling as if you learned something. i tell you what, if you enjoy what you heard today, we only need you to do one of three things. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe, and if it really touched your spirit, go on review and rate this episode. It would mean a lot to us. It helps us get the word out there. Um, it helps us continue to share this great content. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most importantly, we just love to hear what, you, what you'd have to say about uh, some of the content that we're putting out there. So um, please join us again next Tuesday here in the Breakline Arena. Once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn and I am signing out from the Breakline HQ with my partner in crime. Sophia Bodwin, we will see you guys next week. <laughs>